2: This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. Visit our website at iflyvabeach.com to learn more about our group events to include leadership development, team building, and family fun.
1: In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you.
2: Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. If you've listened to previous episodes, you know that I love to have discussions with people who bring great value to me and my organization. And because of that, I invite them on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast because I know that they're going to bring great value to you and your organization. Today's guests, guests plural, are two very unique people who have authored a book recently that is very near and dear to my heart, as people say. it's actually It actually has much more meaning than near and dear to my heart. They wrote a book about what I did for 26 years in the military, the book's not about me. The book was written in a way that covers many, many different angles that we're going to get into. Joseph Schaefer III and Dr. Paula Cap Green are my guests today. I'm going to briefly read their bios. Joseph E. Schaefer III is a Vietnam veteran who served as a medical services specialist in the U.S. Air Force. He's the former director of both the University Honors Program and Arizona Honors Academy, at Northern Arizona University. Joe also taught history on the Mountain Campus in Prescott for NAU. He volunteers in the emergency department at the Northern Arizona VA healthcare system in Prescott. I'm a, a big fan and a frequent customer of the VA. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that, Joe. Uh, Dr. Green is an associate professor emeritus. I love saying that emeritus <laughs> for NAU. She has authored numerous educational articles, chapters, reviews, and booklets. Mother to both a decorated Navy EOD operator, ah, okay, so we have we have some bias here, and a Naval Senior Intelligence Officer. She taught preschool through university-age students uh, for the better part of her adult life. Grandchildren and active volunteering now keep her busy. Joe and Paula are the authors of Unsung, Quiet Voices of the U.S. Navy's EOD Warriors and Their Families. It's an incredible book. I've got it right here. It came out about, I don't know, four months ago, and I read the whole book in three days, roughly. Joe and Paula, welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you,
0: Bob. Thanks.
3: It's a privilege for us to do this, and we appreciate it.
2: Talking about a privilege, I'm glad you said that because it's really a privilege for me to have you on, given your relationship to what I did for a profession for so long, not that this is about me, but this is about you. Very, very strategically, I would say, communicating what it's like to be in Navy EOD, to be in this special operating force. I want to start out just by kind of figuring out or or uh, having our listeners understand how you became you. So Paula, where are you from? Where did you grow up?
0: Uh, Long Beach, uh, California, and a very small community called Lake Elsinore, California.
2: Yeah, okay. An active skydiving community there. There's It a very, is indeed. Very popular drop zone. Okay. And then from Lake Elsinore, so did you complete high school there?
0: I did indeed. Yes. Yes. Um, I had a uh, very difficult home life as a child, and school became my salvation and escape. Wonderful schooling experience I learned at a very young age that not knowing the terminology, I had a resilient brain, I was able to transfer bad situations into good situations. And I also saw at a very early age, that things that happen incidentally, don't always go well. And that when you have intention, you can create a better environment. And I brought that forward into teaching. I, as a little girl, wanted to be one of three things, an actress, a missionary, or a teacher. Wow. And I chose teaching uh, because it incorporated all three in my <laughs>
2: mind. <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. Did you have a job in high school?
0: I did. I Well, I babysat a lot in the summers. I worked uh, at a local taco stand I was very active in school with lots of activities. So there were camps. I was editor of the yearbook. I was senior song leader. I, you know, was on uh, student council. So I uh, incorporated work to support my quote play.
2: How did that journey wind up in Arizona?
0: Hmm. Well, I, oh, that's a. That's a long story. How long do we have for this podcast, Bob? <laughs> uh Yeah, Elsinore, uh, it was a very small community. I went to Cal State University as an undergrad, uh, married, and as a result of my husband's work, wound up in Nashville, Tennessee, and then uh, remarried uh, after uh, uh, that ended
1: okay. and
0: became a Montessori school teacher. I was certified Uh, internationally, quite frankly, for all primary grades. And uh, when I did that, I met people who said, you need to move on with your education. I got my master's degree and my doctoral degree at Vanderbilt University. And uh, at that point, there were openings in Arizona at Northern Arizona University. One particular opening impressed it. I had visited that with dad uh, as a child, loved it. I love the idea of getting out of the ivory ivory tower and being community-based. So I was sort of a one-man band university person for 18 years in Prescott and absolutely loved being able to service uh, those people who wanted to go into education as teachers, counselors, administrators, and couldn't go up to Mountain Campus or down to Phoenix. I was able to have several hundred students complete their degree in Prescott and further their careers. It
2: was a blessing. Truly. Sure. So you're you're shepherding students across the finish line. That is quite, yes. quite rewarding. It's got to be. Yes. Sure. Well, that's incredible. Plus Prescott, Arizona. What a beautiful part of the country. <laughs> truly. And so that was probably part of the allure. Yes. Joe, let's hear about your upbringing. And were you born with that mustache and goatee? <laughs>
3: You know, I I grew this mustache uh, when I started in uh, 1971 in Saigon, of all places, and obviously it's a little bit out of rags, uh, (laughs) which at one point got me in some trouble. I won't tell that story. Uh, I was actually born in Arizona in a little town in the southeastern corner of the state called Bisbee. It's an old mining town, copper mining, copper gold and silver mining town. My grandfather, um, my dad's whole side of the family was from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. My grandfather moved to southeastern Arizona for health reasons. He had emphysema, which was not unusual for folks to do uh, back in the 40s and 50s to come to Arizona for health reasons. I don't think that happens much anymore. We have as many uh, health issues here as anywhere else. Uh, So I was born in Bisbee, but my mother was not really enamored of uh, a place where all the, well, there were too many things that could stick you, poison you, bite you. Uh, So we moved back to Pennsylvania when I was about six months old, and I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania, a town called Uh, York. So grew up there, graduated high school there? I did. I went to William Penn Senior High School, graduated in 1968, flunked out of college in 1969, it's true (laughs) and enlisted in the air force in february of 1970 i spent uh four years in the air force my first duty station was at cameron bay at a a large medical uh, hospital there and for about eight and a half months and then did my last three and a half months in saigon
2: okay so cameron bay in vietnam as well yeah
3: yeah and that really clarified for me uh, that four years of working in a hospital environment uh, clarified for me that that was not going to be my choice of career path down the road. So okay, uh, that okay. that helped a lot.
2: So did uh, were you of the era with the uh, tiger stripe BDUs that the Air Force had uh, during well, the Vietnam time?
3: Well, you know, we wore the the plain green camis. We were so I remember taking a duffel bag uh, with me filled with hospital whites that sat on the floor in my hooch for for eight and a half months because nobody wore whites. We just wore the plain green, plain green uniform. So uh, was it was okay. an interesting period of life for sure.
2: Okay. All right. Any jobs in high school that helped Joe? Oh, yeah. Tech?
3: Actually, yeah. Uh, this, this <laughs> is a, a great uh, story. This. I walked into uh, a butcher shop. But let's see, I guess I was a sophomore in high school. And we, my family had been uh, customers there forever. And so I knew the the family that owned the butcher shop. And I walked in and I talked to Mr. Fisher and said, do you have a job for me? I I don't know how to do anything. I've never had a job aside from, you know, doing things like shoveling snow for people in the winter and mowing lawns and that sort of thing. But a real honest to goodness job I'd, I'd never had before. So he said, yeah, Joe, come back tomorrow. And so I, I went back the next day and I started sweeping up in the back and stocking shelves. And so it was a combination of grocery store, butcher shop and slaughterhouse. And that's where I worked for uh, all of my time in high school. And then that period between um, not doing so well in college and, and entering the Air Force. And I worked during the summer. So that yeah. was probably why they selected me to be a medic is because I'd worked in a slaughterhouse. Yeah.
2: Okay, you weren't you weren't squeamish then.
3: <laughs> when it, I guess when it comes to animal blood, no, yeah. uh, wouldn't I wouldn't say that so much about humans. Yeah. All
2: right, well, um, we're going to talk about your book a little bit. I'm going to throw it up on the screen for our viewers. So I am now off screen, but your book is titled <clears throat> "Unsung: Quiet Voices of the U.S. Navy's EOD Warriors and Their Families." Uh, just uh, again, a book that. That has so much depth and meaning for me; it's hard to put in words. But what does this book mean to you? Let's let's start with Paula, if you don't mind. Why did you write this book, and what does this book mean to you?
0: The book was written because my wonderful husband and I went to a ceremony in uh, Imperial Beach uh, for a couple of uh, EOD enlisted. Who were receiving an award for some work they did in Iraq, and we were so taken by the entire community that we met that day met families uh, as we were driving home Joe said we, we we've got to do we've got to do something you know we, about EOD these people are amazing we knew very little about EOD and we got home Joe did a lot of research and said, "H there's nothing out there." There is nothing out there other than what was produced by Navy.
3: Yeah, lots of videos. Lots
0: of videos. Right. Yeah. So we, uh, you know, he said we need to we need to write a book. Will would you be <laughs> willing to interview family members? I'll interview volunteer operators and technicians. And I said, are you kidding? Of course. So what this means to me is, I'm a big on first person narrative. Many of my students, all of my students, I required them to become very involved when they were researching in first-person narrative. I found that when you have ownership of a project, whatever it is, it means much more. You give more and it changes you for the better, right? So I want to say what it meant to me was giving voice, not our voice, Mm -hmm. the voices of the people involved giving voice to a community that very people know anything about. Purpose, number one, to inform, number two, to honor, and number three, to raise money for the two foundations who support these groups of EOD.
2: To inform, to honor, and to raise money for the two foundations, and those foundations, mm-hmm. and I'm sure everybody knows, everybody mm-hmm. listening knows who they are. But we're talking about the EOD Warrior Foundation, mm-hmm. and we're talking about the Navy Special Operations Foundation. Uh, both incredible foundations that do wonderful things for the communities uh, that they support. Yes, Joe, yes. what does this book mean to you?
3: We're we're bookish people. We both spent our lives in our, our adult lives uh, in the academic world, and so for us. This was an opportunity to, to put into a book form the commitment, sacrifice, and the courage of the folks within the EOD community. And as Paula mentioned a minute ago, that not a lot of folks know about EOD. And so uh, for us, it was an opportunity to let people tell their own stories and their own words and for us to explore more about what these folks do, I mean, we Paul's <laughs> youngest was very reticent to um, tell us exactly what it was that he was doing or where where he was at any given moment, and we honored and respected that, but it left us with sort of an information gap. Sure. Uh, we'd like we'd like to have known more, and so uh, it was a great learning experience for us to do this. It certainly was for me. I mean, I had a military experience 50 some years ago in a completely different realm. And going down the, the rabbit hole of learning about EOD was an incredible experience for me.
2: I have to say that that in terms of that learning experience, the book validated things that I had mm-hmm. already known or experienced. Mm-hmm. And it it reignited, if you will, or it reminded me of how precious that entire life for me, my entire military career, which extends, I'm 13 years retired and, and I still hold such great value, but it reiterated the value that, um, the, the brotherhood and sisterhood, we have some, some women in EOD, it, it, it reiterated the value that, um, is available first person. So the, Uh, Paula, you talked about how you like to focus on first person. Uh, And so the book is written in that format. Two two questions there. One is, is there such a format of, is that a genre of writing, if you will, first person narrative? And then, so is is that a thing, if you will? And then how did you put put it together?
0: Sure. Uh, In educational circles, um, we talk about first person narrative being uh, uh, told, stories told from the individual in the story. For me, that came from actually uh, the Iroquois had a group um, back in the day, back before our days uh, called Chautauqua. Have you heard of Chautauqua? Have not. Okay. So Chautauqua was a storytelling Experience that the Iroquois used, where the members would become the person telling the story. So at night it might not be a person; it could be a thing. It could be the bird, and you would become the bird telling your tale. You would wow. become the blade of grass telling your tale. Oh, I use wow. yes, so I use this with young children when I was teaching elementary school. Uh, we would learn about systems in the body. So let's say that we were talking about, we're learning about the skeletal system. I would have uh, 21 major bones in the body and the children would choose a particular bone and they would become that bone and tell the story of what he or she provided, did, was concerned about, all of those things. At university classes and in, in the first night, We would do stories to introduce ourselves from, like in the Southwest, I would use uh, the coyote, the tarantula, the scorpion, misunderstood, sometimes, many times, misrepresented animals. The students would become those animals, think about those, and then they would introduce themselves as those animals. It's a way to very quickly and deeply get to the root of an issue, a person, a thing, a study.
2: It's fascinating. It kind of reminds me of debate where you'll take a side of an issue that you right. have no personal yes, interest exactly. in whatsoever. Yeah. Yes, yeah. right, exactly. But it's it's but, actually
3: better if you take the, the opposite side from the way you think. Yeah,
2: Easier. absolutely fascinating. So so it's told, so the book is written in that fashion. And and we are going to talk in detail about chapter three, which is kind of the history of EOD. Chapter eight, which is where you captured all the all the leadership discussions that you had, but mm. just to kind of further uh, round out, so you did that first person narrative, but you did it from many different perspectives. Can you discuss that a little bit?
3: Well, because we interviewed forty seven people, we could have, we wished maybe that we could have interviewed a hundred people, but then we'd have a two thousand page manuscript, which would be impossible to to do. Yeah. Yeah. But we did uh, transcriptions of all of the interviews, uh, Most, and I guess, Bob, I should probably reiterate something we mentioned with the uh, Echo Oscar Delta mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, we had all of our interviews were conducted pretty much like this, either on Zoom or mostly over the telephone because of the onset of COVID,
2: uh-huh.
3: you know, just very shortly after we started the project. So there was no real way for us to, to conduct face-to-face interviews. So after we would have these uh, recordings, we'd sit down and we'd transcribe them. And we had probably about a thousand pages Mm -hmm. of transcriptions. And what we began to notice going through those transcriptions is that there were certain themes. And obviously, those were driven in part by the kinds of questions that we we asked both the operators and the family members. Mm So we thought the way to put the book together would be to do it in a in a thematic way, rather than trying to take, say, for instance, your story and telling your story from A to Z, and and then doing that for each individual within the book. So we wanted to work with themes, and that's how we uh, developed the chapters. And uh, so we we plugged various portions of the uh, transcriptions into those chapters. And trying to make it um, rational that way, I guess that's the best way to put it. We
0: didn't want it to be about individual operators and individual family members. We wanted to tell the stories of the community. And the most honest way to do that, and Joe was just a taskmaster with me, uh, not to change any words, not to do anything that took away from the ownership of what everyone said. Mm-hmm. We were absolutely. I mean, we were in tears. We were, we were in laughter as we did the interviews and mm-hmm. as we did the transcriptions, being so careful to make sure that the voices were not our voices yeah. were the interviewees' voices.
3: We did yeah. make some occasional grammatical changes, uh, just mostly for um, for clarity. Occasionally, we had <clears throat> instances where maybe a portion of a phone call had been dropped. And so it was difficult for us a little bit to determine exactly what had happened there, but we used the contextual uh, information to try to recreate as as uh, accurately as possible what we heard. But as we said previously, probably 99% of the book, those are the words from the people that we talked with.
2: Okay. And um, you have 16 chapters in the book total, and I'm just going to read off randomly a few of the chapter titles because there's a there's a chronological flow but also it just really it really presents this i like to use the term 5.1 surround sound right we get this 360 degree omnidirectional view of the of the life the community of the community right not just the operator but the community so chapter 1 small community big job compared to Navy SEALs. So our our community, we're roughly probably in the neighborhood now of 2,000 um, Mm. active duty compared to SEALs, which we're compared to often. They're about double, a little more Mm. than double uh, the size of our community, but small community, big job. Chapter two, be strong for someone else. Absolutely love that. Chapter three, a brief history, which we're going to dive into. Path to EOD, Uh, With Very interesting stories there. Everybody has one. Mm -hmm. When they were young, uh, Foundations for Success. Chapter 7, Evolution. Chapter 8, Leaders and Leadership, which we're going to dive deep on. In the Wives. And then Chapter 9, Families. Chapter 10, In the Wives' Own Words. Chapter 11, What Their Children Say. Just Mm -hmm. a complete picture. Mm -hmm. And uh, something that had me... I mean, every almost certainly every page and almost every paragraph had me personally reflecting back to all aspects of my life. What mm-hmm. it was like at home as I'm getting ready for a deployment. What it was like while I was gone. It it it, it, it makes me emotional, so I, I have to uh, catch myself here. Mm-hmm. Um, but just just really um, really touching.
3: Let's let me let me just interject one thing here. Sure, we didn't just want this to be about. The operators, because we recognized from the outset how important the family structure was in terms of support. I don't think anybody does this job without having strong family support. I don't, and that varies from individual to individual, but it means spouses, moms and dads, siblings, adult children, young children, uh, young children. All, all, and so we wanted to make sure that those people had a voice as well.
2: Yeah. Well done. Well done. And it is such a critical part of of the story and of the life of an EOD tech. Let's talk about chapter three. And and if I understand correctly, Paula, you kind of took the lead on that. Is that right?
0: It is true. And the reason that I did so, Bob, uh, Joe has lots of experience, all things military, with his own service, with supporting veterans from the time that he got back from vietnam in a variety of ways from teaching uh about uh wars conflicts and uh and all of his reading uh his portion of the library uh is uh tr- truly a a study of military history you know for the united states so i said on the at the onset I need <laughs> to do chapter three, a brief history, because I need to be totally embedded in this so that I can speak about this from my own research. Uh, and Joe graciously.
3: No, that's not how that went. You <laughs> said you were, you you were going to do um, yeah, it, and I'm I wasn't it. part of that yeah. discussion.
0: <laughs> so, you know, it took a year, you know, with the support of, uh, uh, you know, lots of people, and mostly because Draper Kaufman is known as the father of both Navy EOD, or pardon me, EOD, and SEALs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the um, uh, chapter uh, is uh, uh, quite a bit... Much of the information comes from Elizabeth Kaufman Bush's wonderful book, America's First Frogman, which uh, came out years ago. And uh, this was his sister uh, who wrote about him from letters home, from talking with him, from talking with others, uh, and then a lot of support from uh, Navy publications and Navy historians.
2: America's first Frogman. So there's one great book recommendation for everybody. Absolutely, out there. yes. America's first Frogman. You know, your summary of uh, of Draper Kaufman and uh, his his life in the military and the way he is the father of both EOD and SEAL teams, I found to be quite fascinating and it was informative. You know, I went through EOD school. Uh, in 1992, so you know that was a couple years ago. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> it was county. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and we do talk about a brief history of EOD, but if I even recalled any of it back then, I certainly didn't remember it. But more importantly, I didn't appreciate it yeah. the way I appreciated it yeah. after I read your chapter. Good it just sense. gave me. More of a sense of of who I was and where I fit into the to the grander yes. scheme of things. But but also foundations of leadership were were hallmarks of Draper Kaufman, who ultimately was the commandant of the Naval Academy. That's mm-hmm. correct.
0: Yeah. I just wanted to interject. I, I had pulled out some notes, you know, from this because mm-hmm. he was so we we can say now eccentric, you know, not he was, but that his his, his career was, he certainly, he was, I get stunned every time I go back and I reread that chapter, I get stunned about his life and his, what he provided. And I get stunned about the traits that he had that are exhibited in every single one of the warriors that Joseph interviewed. And quite frankly, many of the family members uh, with, with whom I, you know, had discussions, character, charisma, Collaborative nature. When he be when he started his work, because the US was not involved uh you know in World War II until much later, he saw firsthand what Hitler was doing. He volunteered for the you know with the French army. He was the United States uh ambulance. Uh, service. But he was on the front lines with the French army. He was in a German prisoner camp before we got into the war. Then he went to England and he volunteered for the Royal Navy uh, Reserve, the British Royal Navy Reserve. And then he volunteered to be part of the bomb squad. There six people, that was it, six people, one American, that was Draper Kaufman. He was a lieutenant in the reserve. When he came back to the United States, U.S. Embassy brought him back uh, to write uh, basically a thesis for three weeks about bomb and mine removal and disposal because he was the only one who had that experience being in Britain, you know, during the Blitz. He did that. Well, then he came back a few months later and started the bomb school mm-hmm. in Washington D.C. He was a now a lieutenant. And he was in the reserve in the United States Navy. I mean, think about that. Who does that? <laughs> <laughs> Who does that?
2: Yeah, right, 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 exactly. Yeah. That? Yeah, that's not so, even an option today. No.
0: And I, I could go on and on. I will just say this, and I'm just wanted to make one point that I started with that I kind of got off track. Sorry about that. Buy the book, read the book, read this chapter. You got to know about Draper Kaufman and then go to uh, Naval Institute Press. The book, uh, America's First Frogman is there. We have that referenced in the book in chapter three. So you'll know, you know, exactly where to go. Uh, But when he was head of the Naval Academy and when he came back to Great Lakes and was you know head of that mm-hmm. there were many many i mean a lot of anti-military uh sentiment and there were many racial issues you know mm-hmm. going on in both cases draper kaufman was the leader that he always was color didn't matter to him rank didn't matter to him what mattered to him was character and teamwork and getting the job done well and one of his uh, young men at uh, at Great Lakes uh, said of him later, I shall never forget his stature, his strength and his kindness. And the other thing that was said was
2: that was an admiral who said, that." yes, it was yeah. an admiral. Yes. Thank you somebody so who much. eventually went on to make admiral.
0: Right. That's correct. And another admiral, well, another fellow, he wasn't an admiral, said, Captain uh Kaufman demanded and always got the best from every man on board when he was admiral of the ship but he did so in a way that made you happy to work for him and ashamed not to that's moving
2: you know there's one other thing out of the uh when the Royal Navy put together their unexploded bomb department key qualification for the job to do (laughs) bomb disposal work a man had to be strong unmarried fast on his feet and fully prepared for the afterlife. Absolutely. <laughs> so it's very interesting and noteworthy and, and and a bit humorous to to see that. but no nothing could be truer when we look back over the last 20 years mm-hmm. and the ceremonies unfortunately that we've attended yeah. you mm-hmm. know and yeah. uh, which, which still continue today. Somebody very well known in our community unfortunately took his life uh, just a couple of days ago. and yeah and so we're grieving through that process right now very interesting though and then it was in 1953 bomb disposal became UDT
0: correct so what happened was he always wanted to go to the pacific and finally just as the school was opening he was sent to the pacific and uh there was a uh, a higher up there who said that uh the uh, teams before were small teams and that wasn't going to work in the pacific so they had the UDTs they were teams of 100 uh, men, uh, and uh, Draper Kaufman became uh, commander of three of those teams. He uh, allowed uh, the teams to work independently. He allowed and promoted flexibility over orderliness, and he knew that the only way, having seen what happened in Norman Normandy, Normandy uh, when the junior officers who were um, the bomb, you know, people weren't allowed to go first to do the saving that he wanted to have happen. He said, no, no, we got to we gotta focus on this independent action. We got to get under. We got to allow our men to think for themselves and be able to uh, get the work done that we know needs to be done under the water. These aerial photographs aren't going to work anymore. We can't get the pictures of what's under there. We got to mm-hmm. go under. And so these guys were, you know, they were waxed up and they were in swim trunks and fins and, you know, and their goggles. And they became known as the Frogmen. You know, the Marines said, God, who are these? You know, guys
2: yeah, on the beaches
0: walking around, <laughs> half yeah.
2: man, half fish.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> Saving lives, and that yeah. was the other thing about him. He said, "We're not here to take lives; we're here to save lives." That's been the ethos, you know, from the beginning.
2: So, a school was established in Fort Pierce, Florida, um, a UDT school. Correct, and, mm-hmm. and then at some point, and I believe that was in the in the forties.
0: Correct. Okay,
2: yes. and then at some point, Draper Kaufman said. There's two distinct job sets here, one of the UDT and one of the bomb technician. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Can you just tell us about that?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, it's interesting because people have very different ideas about exactly, you know, what happened. I mean, there are people who want to claim uh, Kaufman as a uh, father of EOD. There are people who want to claim him, uh, you know, as a uh, SEAL, you know, the father of SEAL. Sure, but he definitely sure. was both, you know, with UDT. In the research that I was doing, I, I couldn't get a specific answer about when that split happened. It was during the Korean War that the UDTs kind of split into SEAL teams mm-hmm. and then the EOD teams you know, and again, that wasn't so important, you know, to us as that this was always an evolving and that isn't that part of leadership, right? Itself, constantly evolving. You talk about, or you have spoken about leadership being perishable. Absolutely right. I think Kaufman knew that he he didn't care about the labels. He cared about the work being done well and his members you know, being taken care of, his people being taken care of.
2: Yeah. And that's a hallmark of the EOD community. There's no doubt about it. So sorry, I looked off to the side there, but I was, I was grabbing my Draper Kaufman coin given to me by one of my former commanding officers, Tom Smith. And when he gave it to me, I, when he, you know, I said, wow, you have a Draper Kaufman coin. He goes, actually, I have two. Would you like one? And I, I almost, I was sitting in a chair in his office, but I almost fell oh. out of the chair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what I wouldn't give for that, yeah. Robert. Yeah. Can we talk later?
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so just an interesting history, and and I think uh, you know, there's a bond, there's a, a brotherhood, a working relationship between Navy SEALs and Navy EOD. Right. And as you have discovered, you know, people, you say you're Navy EOD, you jump out of airplanes, you blow things up, you disarm. They go, oh, you're a SEAL. And you go, no, I'm Navy EOD, <laughs> you know, SEAL teams have this mission set, and we have a slightly different mission set, but all forged of the same yes. foundation, if you yes. will, you know, from yes. Draymond Kaufman. So the relationship that we have with SEAL teams, and again, even today, me as a retired person, uh, my best friend here in Virginia Beach uh, was a career Navy SEAL. Our sons are best friends, mm. and just the the language the ethos, the ego, (laughs) yes,
0: (laughs) so many things are so similar.
2: And and I know in the pages of your book, um, SEAL teams and deployment with SEAL teams are referenced often. So we just talked about the history of EOD, which is chapter three in this wonderful book that I'm going to put back up on screen. It's called Unsung, Quiet Voices of U.S. Navy's EOD Warriors and Their Families. I'm talking to Joe and Paula, as I'm calling them today. We are going to be right back. When we come back, we're going to jump into Chapter 8, which is all about leadership. Folks, we're just getting started. This is such a valuable discussion. (laughs) And if you want to be a great leader, I I don't even want to use the word great. If you want to be an effective leader who's respected and who's known, not because of your great big personality, but who's known for somebody who cares about others and gets Mm -hmm. things done, stick around for our discussion on Chapter 8, All Things Leadership. I promise you, you will be nourished and you will be energized after we have this discussion. Okay, quick break for capitalism. We're all good capitalists here. <laughs> back in a minute. And we are back. We're talking to Joseph E. Schaefer III and Dr. Paula Cap Green, authors right. of Unsung, Quiet Voices of the U.S. Navy's EOD Warriors and Their Families, a fascinating read available on Amazon. We're going to uh, share the details of uh, where you can purchase the book and who the, who the book benefits uh, towards the end of the show, but we're going to discuss Chapter 8, and it's a chapter on leadership. Joe, can you tell us how the formation of Chapter 8 came to be?
3: Well, it came to be a little bit like what we uh, spoke about earlier, because I I wanted to Put together the questions that I wanted to ask the uh, folks who volunteered to be interviewed, I wanted to learn what their thoughts were about leadership within the Navy. My experience in the in the military 50 some years ago, a different time. obviously the Vietnam era was a completely different time culturally, politically, and my experience with leadership in the air force in that particular time period was not especially strong there were lots of problems in the military in the late 60s and early 70s which is the time period that i was in the in the military so i wanted to get a sense of what these uh committed patriotic dedicated people thought about leaders and leadership within the modern day military and specifically specifically within Navy EOD. So I crafted some questions about leadership. Who are well, the best leaders?
2: Yeah.
3: Well yeah, the questions were things like, tell me about some of the, the leaders that you've had and the and the uh the strengths that they exhibited and maybe some of the things that they did that weren't particularly effective. And that really sort of framed a lot of the conversation. Sometimes I wouldn't even have to ask questions. <laughs> I would just uh, begin an interview, and then you know, three hours later, I'd have a, I'd have to be start working on a transcript. But I did want to get a sense of what folks thought was good leadership, and some people gave me more information about in particular individuals. Um, I think Joe Sandoval was probably the best uh, person that exhibited that particular trait. He didn't want to talk about his own leadership style so much as he wanted to tell me about folks that he had worked with who had demonstrated particular characteristics. And that that framed a lot of his conversation. So my sense was I, I wanted to find out who the current EOD guys thought were good leaders and why, and the kinds of traits that they demonstrated.
2: So, you know, that's so important. Who are the good leaders and why? And mm-hmm. then the opposite side of that is who are the poor leaders and Why? Yep. And capturing both of those scenarios, both of those storylines, if you will, is critical. Behind me is a book that uh, I released December in twenty twenty two, just a few months ago. Elevate your leadership, and it's a book about leadership. But and we're not we're not here to talk about my book. But I just want to say that I took my military experience and I overlaid it against my 13 years in the private sector, mm-hmm. and I just felt compelled to write a book about it because of all the incredibly valuable things that I experienced throughout in both environments. But the point is there's such overlap in both environments. Sure. And you mentioned Joe Sandoval, and I've got some quotes here from him. <laughs> and, you know, he's talking about if, if it's moral, ethical, and legal, and it benefits our personnel, then we're going to effing do it.
3: That's what he said. (laughs) said. (laughs) But
2: but I will tell you in the private sector, I have 40 employees. And if something is moral and ethical and legal, and it's going to benefit my employees, and then I add a third component to it, and if it's going to benefit the customer, we're going (laughs) to effing do it. right? So that lesson out of the military, it it applies directly to the private sector. So folks, if you're in the private sector out there, (laughs) great lessons here.
3: And thanks for cleaning that up, by the way. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, another another quote, and, and you know, if you want to say, if you want to uh, um, attribute the quote to the individual, uh, feel free to, but leadership is a full contact sport, and you have to go out there and make contact and be aggressive. My God, I love that. Again, that applies to the private sector as much yeah, as it applies sure. to the military.
3: Yeah, that was a quote from R.D., if I'm not mistaken, uh, somebody who's been in the EOD community for 30 years, and by the way, we we used uh, pseudonyms for everybody who's still on active duty. Okay, uh, we didn't want to expose anybody to yeah. to, to bad, bad actors. So yeah, uh,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. In did you did you notice uh, as you as you asked those questions those those kind of pre prepared questions? Mm-hmm. Did you notice trends in the
3: responses? Absolutely. And so the major trends, I think, well, different folks had different ideas. But clearly, character, competence, courage, compassion. And that was specifically came from RD, but that was echoed in um, many of the other responses as well. Uh, passion and courage, uh, the, and in, on the on the bad leadership side, timidity and fear leads to people getting hurt. We heard that a couple of times in different ways. Uh, The notion of servant leadership, the boss works for you. That came specifically, uh, those are words right out of the mouth of Jake. Uh, Be positive. Always try to turn a negative into a positive, if possible. Look out for your people. One of the characteristics that folks thought was not particularly good was the, the do as I say, not as I do right? So follow the rules that you set. Don't offload responsibility. You can ask people to do the job. As a leader, you retain that sense of responsibility. Uh, Again, character, competence, and connection. I thought that was interesting. That was from uh, former EOD officer Sean Bonowitz. Excuse me. And the connection piece for me means trust, shared sacrifice, or shared hardship. One of the other ideas that came up uh, several times was um, check your ego. Yeah.
2: Oh, big time. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Because yeah. we if all
2: you, have them. We all yeah. have big egos. You have to have a big <clears throat> ego to be an EOD.
3: Absolutely. I think Joe <laughs> Sandoval said specifically, if you think you're a badass, there's probably somebody else in the room who's a bad or badass than you are. So Guaranteed. check your ego, right? Uh, they should have a
2: module in EOD school about that.
3: <laughs> stay, stay focused on mission and team. Right, lead by example. When I went back through the chapter again a couple of days ago, maybe we could talk about this in a few minutes. I, I began to to notice what I thought were some differences in responses based on the number of years that somebody has been in the community. So the younger guys had a slightly different perspective about what they thought constituted good leadership. And then folks who've been in for 25 or 30 years had a different perspective. we talk about that in a minute. Walk the walk, be honest, be reliable, communicate well, trust and empower your people. But like the old Ronald Reagan <laughs> saying, trust, but verify. I saw you that, know? I remember that. Um, Joe Sandoval again talked about the golden rule: do unto others as you would have them do unto you, hold yourself and your people accountable. Know your people and and by that I, he meant on a personal level too, not just Huge. knowing them, not just knowing them as uh people who perform a particular set of tasks, but as human beings.
2: It's called leaning human beings and and uh we talked earlier about the discussion with Bob Jordan and Olivia mm-hmm. Wagner. Mm-hmm. and uh that's what bob pointed out he called it uh human leadership and we have all you know all these other awareness programs which are of great value but that's the first time i heard human leadership and i latched onto that because yeah. uh know your team because we have wives and husbands and children and yep. parents who might be in failing health or a death in the family right. a dog to the vet a car those are real things in everybody's lives and we have to help our teammates with those things as much as we help them with things on
3: the job. Sure. And I, I'll say that when you had your uh podcast with Ryan Crowley, yeah. uh, one of the things that, that struck me is that he talked about doing what's moral and ethical. And that that just really resonated with me. If that's if that's something that needs to be uh, sort of constantly reiterated, I think, rather than just focusing maybe on efficiency or getting the job done, or even just taking care of people. But you have to think in that moral and ethical realm as well. So that really struck with me
2: in the special operations world. That's we kind of ask those three questions uh, when if there's a question, if something's unclear, we mm-hmm. say, "Is it is it moral? Is it ethical? Is it legal?" Right, and you know, and then like Joe says, if the answer is yes, and and uh, it's going to mm-hmm. benefit the troops, full speed ahead. But mm-hmm. those are questions we have to ask. I, I still ask myself those questions today, and as I lead my team of forty people, I tell them to ask themselves those questions. Mm-hmm. Sure. And if something's unclear, get with your teammates, get with your leadership, and let's let's get a good answer to that.
3: And a couple of other things, I think Mark Britton said, be genuine. Don't try to be something or someone that you aren't know yourself which is an old philosophical notion know yourself be genuine lead by example and be honest with yourself so honesty balance respect empower your people and then i guess maybe the last one that i want to mention is be a good listener Mm -hmm. several people mentioned that as a leader if you're listening to your people you're getting probably a sense of all of those things right
2: It's it's so critical. And again, folks in the private sector who are listening to this, just go back and replay everything Joe just said. Capture those words, write them down and review those words every single day. And when a problem walks into your office or is presented to you, use that little checklist of words and respond accordingly. I'm telling you, it works. As trained leaders, We think we have to have the answer for everything. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, then go here and do this or go there and do that. Mm -hmm. In reality, we have to do one of the last things Joe said is we have to listen. And ideally, you guide that person to their own solution. They find it themselves. There's times when somebody will walk through the door with an issue and I know the answer. I know the solution. Mm -hmm. But rather than just bark it out and move on to the next thing, I have that discussion. I seek their input and allow them to find the answer. Right. And then when they find it, they know that they've got my support. I'm exactly. here. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a that's a, a critical aspect of, of this. And what I love about the military and leadership in the military, my experience anyway, is you're going to fail. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yep. And if you're moral and ethical and your actions were legal and in the best interest of everybody involved, then your leadership will pick you up, dust you off. You might get a little ass chewing. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to say, now get out there and do it again.
0: Right. Yeah. right.
2: And that's happened, you know, numerous times throughout my career. And and as as painful as it is at the time, man, the growth that that you experience when that happens is tremendous. Okay. Let's go back to perspective because you mentioned that the responses were a little different based on how long yeah. or how much experience somebody's had such a critical point in in leadership and I'll just you know my own history my view was very different when I was the new guy being sure. led sure. versus the new leader inexperienced right. leader who is now leading right uh mm-hmm. and then and then you gain experience uh, along the way so can you just kind of discuss how that perspective thing struck you?
3: Sure. Um, I'm going to just start off with some of the young guys uh, and some of the comments that they made. So with respect to leadership, I think T-Bone says, uh, the first thing that he says, is the leader a good dude? Moral and ethical so, character. And, and so we know what that means, I think, in a certain sense, right? Uh, does he have a backbone? And that what what he meant by that was, does he stick up for his people, so we know that there are pressures probably from above that leaders have to deal with. And young guys want to know that if they perform and they do what they're supposed to do and the outcome isn't particularly great, they, they want to know that their leaders will have their back. And I think uh, Mattis talks about that in his book, uh, Call Sign Chaos, and that's a different conversation if we want to go there. Oh, great
2: read, though. Great read. Oh, yeah. Be brilliant at the basics. Love that book.
3: Definitely. And implicit in that, I think, is that notion of sticking up for his guys. I think he means, will the leader stand up for or go to bat for those that he leads? And I think as a young guy, that's a very important notion. And then obviously he talked about competence. He talked about being a teacher, which was interesting, being fit and sharing hardship. So, again, that's something that we hear constantly in the community is that, and Joe Sandoval, I think, said it best if you're the leader, you're the first guy up in the morning and you're the last guy in bed at night because you're taking care of your people, you're making sure that everything gets done. So, JT said, be humble keep your ego in check, put the boys first. Uh, the team comes first. Don't worry about repercussions from above and put others above self, which we also heard uh, a lot. Nick said be humble, admit error or lack of knowledge. Good leaders have to engender trust so that those being led can voice their problems and those are the problems runs the probably the full spectrum. Grumpy talked about humility again, be open to other ideas, which is uh, also mm-hmm. something that Draper Kaufman uh, encouraged uh, with his own people, he said most of his, the, the really good ideas came from the enlisted guys and the junior officers, right. Mm-hmm. Not the, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, Grumpy
2: saying be, what is it? He, he said what again? Grumpy said.
3: Be open to other ideas and be a good listener.
2: Be a good listener. Okay. A, a, yeah. a guy with the call sign Grumpy you know, it's just know, kind of there's right? a contrast there.
3: Well, he told his wife says she calls or he said his wife calls him grumpy pants.
2: Uh-huh. So I shortened that to grumpy. <laughs> okay, I got <gotcha>.
3: you. <laughs> and then RD mentioned and 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 this is kind of off track just a little bit, but uh, it's an acronym. Uh, Wait, W A I T. Why am I talking? And that's something that he would uh, tell himself in the course of meetings. He wanted to to not talk so much. He wanted to force himself to be a better listener. I thought that was a really, really cool idea. Why am I talking? Carl talked about the balance between freedom to do the work and sort of the the hands-off approach. And Mattis talks about that in his book as well. You know, uh, express commander's intent clearly. And then leave it up to your people with their own initiative, their own intelligence, with their own training, with their own sense of drive uh, to figure out how to get the job done. So I guess the other the corollary to that would be don't micromanage.
2: So, folks, uh, to the listeners, again, we're talking about all these characteristics of leadership, these traits of leadership, but we're talking about Navy EOD. We're talking Mm. about an organization that disarms Conventional explosives, <clears throat> chemical, radiological, biological, and nuclear weapons systems. So when things go wrong, it's yeah. catastrophic. It's mm-hmm. irreversible. Mm-hmm. So we have to get it right. We have a saying in Navy EOD, which I'm sure you guys heard, mm-hmm. initial success or total, total failure. failure. Right. And so these, these, these concepts of leadership that we're discussing, I mean, lives are literally on the line. The life... Mm-hmm the lives of your teammates and your own life. So ego can't get in the way. Rank Mm -hmm. can't get in the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, junior versus senior, time and service, those things can't get in the way. The best idea wins. When it comes to taking apart explosives, Mm -hmm. the best idea wins, hands down, don't care who you are.
0: Right. Before Joe goes to then the older old uh, guys, the old guys, the guys who've been in longer. Can we can we be a little (laughs) bit more? Yeah. I want to go. I want to go back to because we've talked about good listening several times in the last few minutes. Uh, And in education, I always thought of how do I change the word good to a more specific adjective that we can then describe specifics to. And what I, but wasn't mine, I bought it, borrowed it from somebody else. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Is active listening. Mm. So good listening is active listening. Mm-hmm. And it goes back, Bob, to what you were saying with you might have uh, an answer for someone who comes in with, Hey, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that. And you know what it is, but you actively listen to what that person is saying or the body language or the verbal language. And you help draw that out from that person. So that person can discover from himself or herself what it is that he or she needs to do. And much of what I heard with the young guys was they wanted leaders to actively listen.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Absolutely yeah. love it. Well, we're not leadership experts, what we Nobody know is. about what <laughs> we know about leadership in large measure comes from what folks told us as we were doing this book. <laughs> so uh and we hope that the book brings some value to these ongoing discussions that you have with your clients about leadership. Yeah, we let these guys tell us. So old guys, do we want to talk about the old guys? The, the people I mean,
0: who have been in long see, the,
3: the, the more seasoned. <laughs> Okay, so there's a um, lot
2: of euphemisms we can use. Oh, there. oh yeah.
3: So RD said, uh, "Help others become a better version of themselves." Right. As a senior leader, I can see how that um, resonated with him. Someone who was trying to always, always help folks that were working and and uh, both with and for him to become better versions of themselves, not just as operators necessarily, but I think probably as people as well. Build trust, be calm, be aggressive, help people grow, uh, and the idea that we're in this together. All of those things uh, are probably working in concert to help people uh, do what they need to do and to become better themselves. Uh, Jake and RD, as you read in in chapter uh, I think in chapter eight talked about uh, having been uh, in a bad situation and how they turned that around. And so Jake, Jake's number one thing about RD was be positive. The man, yeah, that
2: was the uh, Djibouti story, yeah, exactly.
3: The man was absolutely positive. He said, "Okay, we acknowledge that things went south. We get that. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to do everything we can." to do a 180 on this. And as it turns out, that's what happened. Um, Servant leadership, look out for your people, be a role model, follow rules that you set, be responsible. And I think by that he meant accountability goes both ways. Sean Bonowitz talked about ego again, be mission and team focused, be calm, connect. Again, I think that's a human concept. Uh, and then try to balance these three things, hierarchy, discipline, and meritocracy. And I was really struck by that. That's I I I have the sense that Who
2: Who said that again? Who?
3: Sean Sean Bonowitz. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's about page awesome. it's about page 140 or so. Okay. Um, I'm
2: going to flag that.
3: Yeah.
0: Your pages might be different.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why I I gave it a page or two, but he talked about how in the special warfare community, that was really important to try to balance those three things, hierarchy, discipline, and meritocracy.
2: Again, leaders, private sector. This is so relevant to what you do as a leader Mm -hmm. in any industry, in any Mm -hmm. organization, uh, these are just wonderful words of wisdom. Is there more, Joe?
3: Oh, yeah, a couple more. Joe Polanin, very succinctly, do the right thing. Do the right thing the first time. Mark Britton, be genuine, character and compassion, lead by example, know your strengths and weaknesses, and have the back of those when that you work with when things get tough. And then finally, Chris Appleton said, and we'll go back to your notion of active listening, be a good listener. So there's a, a little bit of a difference between some of the more seasoned well said. leaders and some <laughs> and some of the uh chronologically less Advanced people. Less experience, yeah. (laughs) Salty old dogs. Yes, there you go. (laughs) Uh,
0: And I wanted to share one of the things on leadership that one of the uh, adult children said about leadership in the uh, chapter on uh, what the children say. Uh, Will is his pseudonym. Will focused on leadership when he was talking about being proud. He said, it's really interesting. I mean, all of the stuff has been super cool. The fact that he raised up sunken ships, the fact that he recovered VIP bodies, the people he has put in prison, all of that stuff is great. But honestly, I am most proud of watching him with his men as a leader. I am privileged enough to be able to watch him as a leader, how he cares for his men, how he has been able to make sure that they are safe and that they have been effective at the same time. As I go into my own military career, that is honestly what I look up to most.
2: Moving yeah. to say the least, you know, that brings up a whole another aspect of the leadership discussion, which is we also lead in our personal lives. Yes. Mm-hmm. And yes. the things that we espouse to be in the military uh, are almost a, a direct overlay in our personal lives with our with our family members and certainly with our children who mm-hmm. believe it or not are listening to every single word we say yeah. and, <laughs> and they're processing everything. And so it's really remarkable and something to be conscious of. So once again, folks, these traits, they apply in the workplace, they apply at home, they apply if you're volunteering your efforts in the community somewhere. Um, you know, this is who you want to, it, well, somebody said it earlier, this is who you genuinely want to be.
3: Your your guy Marty Strong also said, and, and I I wrote this down. Uh, three things: be confident, have charisma, and I love this. Have a sense of humor for sure. Laugh for at sure. how laugh at how bad things are. <laughs> in order to in order I for things to, to get better. better. Yeah, yeah. That, that just really struck me. Is, uh, those three things are very important. Isn't
2: it brilliant? So just, just for the listeners, so Marty Strong is a retired Navy SEAL, served for 20 years, and he's a very successful CEO and uh, author. Uh, he authored two business books and he's authored about nine novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, the lessons you can learn from Marty's books are also incredible. And and you can listen to Marty's episodes on the podcast as well. Yeah. Speaking of that, thank you for queuing me up for the commercial. Folks, if you're enjoying this discussion, <laughs> my podcast is available on all the platforms, Apple and Spotify and Google, etc. But also the video versions of this podcast are available on my YouTube channel, which is Elevate Your Leadership I also have many other little nuggets of gold, little 30 second, one minute, two minute discussions or topics that I've extracted from mm-hmm. the longer discussion. And these are little nuggets of gold that you can play at your next leadership team meeting. These are things that you can play at, you can you can uh, run at your weekly meeting nice. and you can have a little five to 10 minute leadership discussion around whatever that topic is. This is not my professorial Wisdom. These are people who are sharing their insights with us. And it's just so tremendously valuable. And it only takes you two minutes to capture that value. And then, most importantly, share it with others. Mm -hmm. So, if you go to Elevate Your Leadership on YouTube, you're going to find not only this discussion, but many others. So, thank you for driving me in that direction, Joe. You bet. You bet. (laughs) One of the other things that I think was mentioned a couple of times, and again, certainly it's been my experience, is The bonds that we form while we go through training, when we're in EOD school, when we're in dive school, and, you know, that's a crucible. EOD school, if things go well, is about 12 months in duration. Mm -hmm. There's typically a Christmas break, but there's really no other break. You're looking at 12-hour days. You PT for a couple hours in the morning. You have an eight-hour classroom or a 10-hour class in lab and field. And then you go to night study. And uh, night study is usually two hours in duration. And if you are having some issues somewhere in the curriculum uh, and you went to night study, the instructors will do everything they can to really help you through. They're leading, they'll do everything. Yes. They, will, they will be true leaders and help you through the process. If you haven't gone to night study, woe unto you. (laughs) But these bonds are formed during PT, they're formed during the schoolhouse day, they're formed during night study. And these bonds, they really last throughout an EOD
3: tech's career.
2: You know, I I heard a couple mentions of that, but do you have anything to add there? Did anything capture your attention?
3: I I think the bonds even go beyond that in the sense that uh, so when we've spoken to some of these younger guys, they they know the reputation of people who have preceded them. And I I think that's an Im- important concept. It's not just who I know personally you know on a one-to-one basis, but there's a there's a history, there's a legacy, and there's this uh, connection that I think probably transcends generations and uh decades that struck me uh as well
0: and you know i'm thinking of bill nesbitt and uh his <laughs> who, okay who we, right of course <laughs> well and you know it's interesting i uh, had the privilege of uh interviewing one of his daughters and she uh was very adamant that we used her uh real name not not a pseudonym so riley is uh you know in the what the adult children say this sense of connect connectivity and the sense of well beyond your time in the community, Riley feels absolutely 100% supported by the EOD community. She has throughout her life. She does now. And her dad has been retired for for quite some time. Mm -hmm. She said during her interview, I know that if I'm anywhere in the world and there is Someone living there who's part of the EOD community, I can reach out, and I know that person will be there to support me and to help me. Without as a best doubt, she
3: and that, do that's amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: Who is. can do that? I mean, who can right. do that? My own son had said, "Mom, you know, this is what I always looked for. This is what I always wanted." Uh, my son was has always been loyal as a young child to the nth degree. And he said, I have now that brotherhood where I know that I have their backs. They have mine in so many ways, well beyond the mission.
2: Yeah, it's incredible. I I play golf from time to time uh, amongst the other activities that I do with mm-hmm. with the other, uh, we'll say salty EOD techs in the area. Mm-hmm. and uh, And really, we spend so much time reflecting on that, what a privilege it is, what an honor it is. Of course, all we talk about is our kids. Mm-hmm. and what our kids are doing and and right. moving on and uh you know there's there's scholarships the the EOD foundation mm-hmm. has scholarship opportunities and if you respond if you write the essay you're going to get a scholarship nobody yes. nobody's left out of the process and it's just one of those one of those things it's just really a privilege that's great one of the other things and i think it was mark britton uh said and it's god it is just so true Leadership is not rocket science. Oh, yeah. Reflecting on my personal experience, you know, you have these university degrees and certificates and, you know, architectural leadership. And, you know, and and I'm not saying there's not value to those things because there is great value. But at the end of the day, you know, again, I own a business with 40 people and I manage my own profit and loss statement. And, you know, I understand all those aspects of business. But at the end of the day, it's addition, subtraction, multiplication, <laughs> and division. And that's it. That's right. as complex as the math gets. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, I, and I think leadership is the same way. That's not to say that it's easy. You know, you could have like a, a, a really big set of numbers that you have to either add or subtract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But at right. the end of the day, it's the process is not yeah. complex. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I just love that out of Mark. Do you have any, any observations there?
3: You know, I I thought about that in the context of what we were going to be discussing today. And I hope that Mark Britton's uh, comment wasn't uh, denigrating of what it is that you do and what you're trying to do. But he did say, there are people who come and talk about this for five hours. And I talk about leadership in five minutes.
2: I love it. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So
3: so the idea that um, there are some sort of fundamental, basic, uh, I don't want to use the word simple, principles that can be applied across the board in all sorts of uh, environments and those can be pretty straightforward i think
2: actually when i speak um and i even i even have this in my book and blog posts and all that and i say that it is not rocket Mm science. it's not rocket science it's not a complex undertaking again doesn't mean it's easy because we're leading human beings right But if you have the traits that we've discussed, moral, ethical, legal, be honest, be open, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you display all those traits, and and that's the part to where it's not complicated, but it's not easy. You have to have all of those traits and qualities in your conscious mind. Mm -hmm. In other words, you have to review this stuff on a regular basis. So when that situation presents itself, you've got the appropriate response as a leader right here, and you can deploy that response Rather than say or do something that's inappropriate for the situation and, Mm -hmm. you know, could could later come back and and cause additional problems. So so not rocket science. Hey, I'm on board, man. I love it.
0: (laughs) I want to add to that rocket surgery. I want to add one small piece to that. Um, The ability to struggle. Well, Uh, the U.S. Navy EOD, Andrew uh, Bottrell. I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. Last name correctly did a fabulous podcast on struggling well, where he talked about um, turning post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth to become one's best self. And we heard versions of that over and over again uh, during our interviews. And
3: actually there's a, I pulled a quote out of um, one of Robert Hornfisher's books about Draper Kaufman, which is in a footnote in our book somewhere. And he said that uh, Kaufman believed in volunteering so that he could always associate himself with the best, best people. people. Yeah.
2: That is so cool. That's see, that just reminds me of, I coach high school hockey. This was my son's last season, mm-hmm. probably the last, the certainly the last game that I'll be his coach. Mm-hmm. But in my reflection there, what you just said is exactly what it was. The people that I got to associate with an experience and meet just a privilege. It was, um I've received way more than I've given. And generally yeah, when exactly. you give, that's what happens. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to briefly touch on the aspect of trust and character, which uh I, mm-hmm. I know was referenced several times. You know, we talked about, uh, or one thing we didn't talk about, uh somebody mentioned that your character is something that you came through the door with. Your character mm-hmm. is developed in your DNA, I think is what uh, what the person said. Mm-hmm. Your character's in your DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and again, in the private sector, I think it's the same thing. When we interview people, we're interviewing for character, for moral and ethical character, and mm-hmm. we'll teach you the skill set, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And that's something that uh, is, I mean, your character is your, it's your reputation. It's who people perceive you to be. It's, it's just huge. And, and again, I wish there was a module on that in EOD school, because I just look back, you know, when I was young and energetic and thought that leaders didn't know what the hell they were talking about, you know, just ask me, I know what's going on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so great. Just another great, uh, another great, ob- but the character, you know, ha- having, reflecting on your character seemed to be a theme as well.
3: Absolutely. And that's, I think that was a quote from RD. He talked about, You're probably not going to change people's character, but you can help them become better at strengthening their strengths and working on their weaknesses. And and I thought that was a great concept as well. Mm
0: -hmm. Always opportunity for growth. Yep.
2: Always, no matter yeah. who you are, yeah. lifelong learning—it's—it's yeah. a, right. a big part of what I write about, and it's—it's mm-hmm. it's really one of the reasons I do this podcast because mm-hmm. it, it nourishes me. Mm-hmm. It's lifelong learning, and then again, sure. I get to share this with people, so it's—it's mm-hmm. it's really an honor. What haven't I asked you? We'll start with Paula. What?
0: <laughs> what?
2: What would you like to share with everybody that we haven't right. to yet? You
0: know, the first thing is, oh, you will begin to know this community that extends from Navy EOD, we're talking about heroes, we're talking about uh, compassionate people, people of service in all walks of life, you will learn so much when you read this book, I will say when you read this book, I just want to share one paragraph, and this is what you haven't asked, uh, that I'd like to do, because this truly sums up uh, for the wives what they want to tell others, and I need to say that as the wives mostly speak about their experiences (laughs) of EOD there, it's not always positive there. I mean, life is a struggle. Life isn't easy. Life with a Navy EOD warrior isn't easy, right? So, um, but this is what uh, Candace, one of the interviewees said she wanted others to know at its core. EOD is a relatively intimate community of men and women working to secure our safety. She elaborated, Most people who ask what my husband does hear the term EOD and ask, What does that mean? In all communities, there are those working toward pursuing glory. EOD is no different. The nature of their job, however, is quite humbling in that it forces you to understand how far from invincible you are. A single wrong decision could cost your life or the life of a platoon mate, whether under fire or not. So while many of the other forces are basked in adulation, EOD is often missed. Most of the operators would argue that this simple omission is a mark of how well they are doing their job, and they wouldn't change a thing. At the heart of the community is a fierce pride in remaining the unsung. I am of course biased, <laughs> but to my thinking, this attitude is the definition of heroism Wow read the Read the book.
2: How old was the person who made that uh, contribution uh, early thirties moving for sure, Joe, what haven't I asked you that you would like to share?
3: Well, we know there is um an issue these days with recruiting and retention. and so you haven't asked specifically uh, about that and um, what we hope this book means there. We would like that this book to aid in getting the word out about who you guys are, what you do, why you do it, how you think, uh, what your end goals are, so that, Other smart, dedicated, committed, patriotic people will choose this path. And that's one of the large hopes for for this book, is that folks will read this, get a sense of what it means, and step up to the plate.
2: It's an incredible career, and thank you for pointing that out. You know, we'll close where we opened. Uh, It's such a meaningful Lifestyle, I, to call it a lifestyle doesn't even come close to what it really is. it's yeah. it's it's your entire existence, and it's your ability to give to others professionally and personally. Thank you very much for that. Is there a way to get this book on college and university bookshelves?
0: The book is print on demand., uh, we went uh, self-publishing for two reasons. One, it we were able to get it out there faster. Than mm-hmm. waiting for the track with with more traditional publication, and two, we wanted to raise money with this book, and we knew that that was our best chance of being able to uh, share fifty percent, basically, of uh, of our net royalties with in SOF and with the Warrior Foundation,
3: unfortunately. So
0: w- with that, <laughs> yeah, Bob. So with that, uh, the book is ordered on Amazon.com slash books. Some people have had difficulty ordering just by going to Amazon. Joe has an unsung Facebook page where the link is directly there uh do having the link is very helpful yeah and the link will be in the
2: show notes here folks the link will be in the show notes. okay
0: thank you but in terms of college and university bookshelves uh we would love for that to happen uh people would need to step up and uh, buy the book to have that on the shelves and then sell that
3: i'm sorry we are doing a, a talk next month for the faculty and staff at Northern Arizona University. So that's a step in the right direction. And we're also doing something at a local college community here college. in May?
0: In Prescott and May, in, yes. Prescott so in May, yes. That's great. So,
2: will, those, will those be recorded? And can you put those out then?
0: They, uh, we know we that, hope so, yeah. yes. We know the community college one will be. We're hoping the NAU one will be right. also. Okay.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, please let me know when those come out because I'll share those with, with my social okay. and on all my social okay. media Excellent. as well. Thank you. So, so we've answered kind of the last question, question, which is how can people get a hold of this book? So it's available on Amazon, Amazon slash
0: Amazon.com slash books, Books. and then just put in unsung quiet voices. It'll pop right up. Otherwise, some people have had trouble getting to it. We don't understand. We think that I have to,
2: honestly, I have. So, but I did, like I said, I did obtain it right away. And uh, just folks, here's, here's what the, what the uh, book looks like on on the surface or on the on the front page okay. the oh, front cover um, i should
3: ma- let me just mention that that take a look at that uh, photo on, on the front cover bob let's go with let's go with that one okay so what do you see can you see, can you tell what that what that picture is
2: uh let's see do i see any od badge
3: uh, no that no? is my wife took that okay. picture of a lightning strike about 20 miles from the back deck of our house.
2: Wow. No kidding. Yes. That is remarkable.
3: Yeah. Right? And we thought that was a perfect photograph for the cover of the book.
2: That is remarkable. That's, you know, we have pictures like this in the EOD community where we make these big detonations, sometimes <laughs> we'll throw gasoline in there to get the flame effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
0: This is this is nature. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that is incredible. Thank you so much for pointing that out. That is unbelievable. Way, way to go. Is there a photo credit inside the book? Uh
0: it's back, on the back cover. Back cover. I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Our cover was uh, designed by uh, Karen, covers by Karen.com. We can't highly recommend her enough. If people are looking for cover ideas, she is phenomenal. And then it says cover photograph by PK Green. That's, That's me. You?
2: That is so cool. Thank you, babe. You're welcome. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. way to point that out. That is so cool. (laughs) Folks, let's get a hold of the book. I will add that I have the book on order to carry in my retail shop. So here in Virginia Beach, Virginia, um, I carry several books, primarily by local military authors, but there's a few instances where I have non-local, and obviously, you're one of those instances. So I can't wait for them to come in and get them on display. Thank you see what kind of sales we get, right? So we're supporting great foundations. Joe and Paula, I thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank thank you. you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit Pizzini.com. Robert, P I Z Z I N I dot com and connect with him on LinkedIn.